WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of City Talk, a rarity for me and something special. I am interviewing a college professor, a professor of history, which I have no problem admitting was one of my worst subjects in school. She is Erica Breesacker, and she is a teacher of German history at Worcester State College here in Massachusetts. And Erica, this is neat. I've never interviewed a college professor until today. Well, I haven't gotten to be on community radio either. I've been on two podcasts, but none that go live during a broadcast. So it's an exciting thing, too. I always like to find out about people and what got them started. You are not from Massachusetts. You are from Wisconsin. Yes. And and you are a sports fan. How did all that lead to teaching? <laughs> and tell me what it was like growing up. Right. Okay. So those are a bunch of different questions. And some of them are related and some of them are not. And I'd probably start at the being a sports fan, uh, being raised by a parent who was a fan of a team not in my in my state. So I was raised by a Cubs fan. In, and a Bears fan in Packerland and Brewers Town. So that was rough to begin with, um, especially the Bears-Packers thing. But uh, I definitely became a diehard Brewers fan very, very quickly because somebody needed to be. And uh, they, they didn't have, you know, a very big footprint outside of Wisconsin because they got overshadowed by the Cubs and the Cardinals and the Tigers and even the Twins a little bit. So there was always that. And I guess the only connection to teaching I can think of, or at least the history part, is that my dad and my mom, too, always felt that everything had a history, whether it was sports, whether it was a specific player or, you know, a place, someplace, county stadiums history and what was there before and how it got laid out with the town versus the rivalries of sports and then, you know, expanding that beyond what was happening at the time, various sports events were going. And I was just sort of surrounded all the time by history and by stories. And I think that probably led me to be interested. Um, But I did resist the whole teaching thing for a very, very long time, more because I resisted being in school longer than I needed to be. (laughs) And, (laughs) And so when I graduated college, after realizing I needed to come up with a plan for after college about now during my senior year, I basically was excited I'd be out of college, I'd be out of school, never again. And that lasted for about six months and then I was back in school again. (laughs) (laughs) So I couldn't really stay away, I guess, is really the, the story there. But you needed a major, didn't you, in college? Like when I went, I knew I wanted radio broadcasting And I majored in communications. Mm -hmm. So when you went to school, where did you go and what did you decide to major in to begin with? Well, I actually went to school, first of all, making the the big mistake of going to my parents' alma mater, where my dad had been a stellar student and I was not one. (laughs) Um, But I went to school at Illinois Wesleyan University in central Illinois in Bloomington, uh, right down the road from normal Illinois, where Illinois State is. And I originally wanted to major in music with a performance piano degree and English because I really liked creative writing. And I really wanted to be a double major because I couldn't really make a decision one way or the other. Um, I auditioned on piano. I also play other instruments, but you know, didn't really realize I could audition on more than one thing and got really nervous and managed to forget the song that I was playing. So I improvised, which apparently... <laughs> was a no-no in improvising one of the best-known Chopin pieces ever. (laughs) They didn't so much like that part, especially for performance. You don't want someone who's going to get up on stage and promptly forget the sheet music. Was it it Chopin's Polonaise by any chance? No, it was the Nocturne in E-flat, the one everybody knows that I then had to just sort of make up. (laughs) 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 Which... Obviously didn't go very well. So ultimately I got in for English, but not for music. And I started out in English. Um, That was going to be my primary major with an emphasis on creative writing. And then I took a class on uh, as a gateway freshman course on the fall of European communism. And this is 1998. So it wasn't that long after the fall of European communism, but 
I really fell in love with political science. So I added that as a minor because I wouldn't have to take stats, which (laughs) for people who don't love math and for me who wasn't terribly good at math, that was a godsend. And then I discovered, oh, wait, I still really like history. So I'm going to add that as a major too. And the story of my college career was one of just adding lots of things uh, you know, getting involved in, in learning different histories that I found really fascinating, as well as taking different literature courses. For a while, I, for whatever reason, focused on Russian literature and took a bunch of Russian lit classes and then uh, a bunch of political science, especially constitutional law. So I was all over the place. Uh, for six whole weeks, I was also a minor of anthropology and then discovered I would have had to graduate late. So there went the anthropology. Um, But by the time I got done, you know, it was just being really interested in all the different interconnections and finding that my history degree really became the one that I I got immersed in and, and started to really love more than the English, which surprised me. And I just sort of excelled and did better in those classes. And those were the one, as we were talking about earlier, those were the ones I made it to (laughs) (laughs) Uh, for all, all possible students, you know, out there, some of your professors weren't great at going to class either. (laughs) Were you, were you like me when I was in college, I was very close to Fenway park. Hmm. And there, there were some days when somehow going to classes of Western civilization just didn't (laughs) seem as appealing as, going to Fenway Park and watching Rico Petroselli and Ray Culp pitch for the Red Sox. Right. Oh, I can imagine having, you know, a a major league ballpark close by. Being in central Illinois, we didn't have, you know, a big ballpark. We had some minor league uh, close by, but uh, it was more of a, if something was on TV, you know, that's where I could watch my games. So I would end up not going. I can definitely see though, if I were anywhere near Miller Park, sorry. (laughs) American Family Park, which will be Miller Park for me always, uh, I would have a hard time going to class, even as the professor. <laughs> God, I can remember when 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 the Braves came to Milwaukee. Yeah. Well, I mean, not not when they left Boston, but I remember when they won their first World Series, they beat my New York Yankees uh, <laughs> uh, in 1957. But the Yankees got their revenge the following year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the, the Braves ended up leaving town in 1965. So, you know, Milwaukee was without a team for a while. And every time the Atlanta Braves come back now, which is what made this year's playoffs so rough for me as a Brewers fan. Yeah. <laughs> lack my team after game one. I mean, I guess the cold comfort of losing to the eventual World Series winners, I suppose, is fine. But... <laughs> <laughs> All right. How did how did all this lead to, uh, you know, what 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 happened that got you a job in teaching? And did you start out teaching in Wisconsin before you came to Massachusetts? And well, let's get to the core of the matter and take your time and developing. it. Well, to be to channel my mom and give you some backstory, my first teaching gig ever really was teaching swimming lessons as a high schooler. Uh, to little children and hoping that they wouldn't drown on me. And so, (laughs) you know, being able to keep, uh, you know, seven or eight, five-year-olds above water is definitely something. And and then as they get older, they don't listen better. I I learned, especially when they're in a swimming pool. But um, I did learn how to sort of navigate breaking down a lesson and teaching that way uh, at that time. And so that actually kind of funded me getting through uh, undergrad in college. I taught swimming lessons at the YMCA in Bloomington and then teaching swimming lessons and lifeguarding when I was in graduate school at Southern Illinois. So I guess I did get my teaching started in Wisconsin, but I really actually got in the classroom for the first time um, when I went into graduate school in Southern Illinois. And we were on the Illinois side of St. Louis. So that was where I did have to deal with, you know, Bush Stadium being close by and my team showing up periodically to play against the Cardinals, uh, being married to a Cardinals fan, which has been a difficulty that I have endured at the time. (laughs) But 
it's really there that I got into the classroom and it was almost by accident. Um, I didn't quite know what to do with myself after graduating undergrad. I was working retail and had just gotten married and we had our oldest son and, and I was lifeguarding and kind of decided I needed to do something. So I went back to school originally to get a teaching degree for teaching high school. But very quickly, I discovered I don't have a patience for bureaucracy, which is ironic that I'm in academia now. But there were so many changes to the answers I needed to sign up for class or to just register to begin with that were like unwritten and I had no idea and it was going to drag everything out. So I said, forget this. And I walked up to the history department at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, up to the chair's office and said, hi, I'd like a master in history, please. And she kind of stared at me because that's not how one does that. It usually takes a lot longer <laughs> um, with applications months in advance, which I hadn't been aware of because I wasn't paying attention. Um, and, and it kind of went from there. I took a couple classes and then officially entered the program and got an assistantship and started TAing for a professor and being able to, you know, periodically give a lecture and taking my own classes at the same time. And it was after that that then I also got involved in museum studies. So that's the other sort of balance side. I do most of my work in German history, but I do a lot of museum studies too. And so I got involved in that and that expanded my horizons a bit more and working in archives in St. Louis and, you know, being able to see the ballpark every day and going, oh no, better go to work instead of go to the game. Um, and, and then having to decide, you know, what I wanted to do after my master's degree. Did I want to keep going for a PhD and figure out where that was? Or did I want to keep working in the archives world or do something else entirely? And I ended up applying and getting a degree in, in German history at Kent State University in Ohio. Oh. My husband also uh, is in academia. He's a sociologist, and he also got into the PhD program at Kent State. So we moved the family then to Ohio and started another six years and, and time with research and classes and teaching. And that's really, I think, where I you know honed the teaching chops and really the love of teaching my own classes was probably in Ohio. So... <laughs> Can I ask you one question, just out of curiosity? Sure. One of the places I've always wanted to go in Ohio, and believe it or not, it wasn't a ballpark, was Cedar <laughs> Point. Cedar Point. Did you sure. ever get there? Um, I have to hang my head and say no, but I drove by it a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We drove by it. We drive by it every once in a while when we're going to Iowa. Mm -hmm. And uh, my cousin spent a lot of time in Sandusky, Ohio. Oh, yes. Well, and that's where Cedar Point is. So yeah. it's just outside, you know, about uh, 40 minutes, I guess, away from Cleveland. And we always talked about going, but grad school doesn't pay real well. And yeah. it's expensive to go, especially when you have little kids who you have to figure out if they're going to be able to handle roller coasters and, and whatnot. So we actually never made it to Cedar Point. Ah. chagrin of everyone around us where it was sort of a pilgrimage that everybody went to for a while so where did you go after ohio did you get to worcester or or yeah yeah so i was finishing up my my doctorate and the way applications work with the academic job market is this very long drawn-out process some faster than others but it's again very much like putting in an application and six months later you might have a job so it's a very long process with several interviews, and I applied to the job here at Worcester State, which the job ad that I applied to just seemed written for me. It's like they were reading my dissertation as I was writing it, which was nice because I needed to finish writing it. And I got an interview and got offered the job, and we picked up and moved. <laughs> so I've really only ever been in my full-time career at Worcester State. And it's been a really good blessing. I really love the students and the type of institution that Worcester State is. Uh, and then a couple of years later, my husband also 
ended up sort of putting down roots in the same institution. So we both really got lucky in landing in a place that was very much the type of school we wanted to teach in with the with the students we wanted to work with. And, you know, coming from public education in particular, it was one of those things that we both were really committed to. So it, it was kind of serendipitous. It's usually not that straight of a line for doctorate degree to to job, I usually try to whisper that because many people go many cycles on the market. And, and so, you know, when it fits, it fits, I guess. And you sort of get that, that lucky strike. I only taught for two years. Unfortunately, I wish it could have been longer. It was a part-time position uh, at the school where I obtained my degree in communications. But I've got to tell you, there was nothing more satisfying than hearing the success of some of our some of the students that I taught. Uh, I had one young gentleman who eventually got a job at a fifty thousand watt station in Philadelphia, mm. and every everybody said he was the Gary Lapierre of the <laughs> Philadelphia market. And boy, that made me feel real good. Absolutely, it's it's always phenomenal, first of all, to sort of see the light bulb go on in the classroom when you're talking about something or, you know, especially as a, for a historian, you know, a connection gets made or a student finds a document and they're super excited about it. And, and it makes it all worth it to where, you know, I'm currently grading drafts of capstone papers that are 20 pages long and going, oh my goodness, why did I do this to myself? And, but reading just what students are producing and sort of showing them, no, you are a historian, you know, you are, you are a colleague at this point. And to hear just students talk about their work and be excited about it is one of the best things that is, as cliche as it sounds, it really makes the job worth it when there are so many days that it's very, very, very tiring. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely a feeling unlike others, for sure. All right. Explain uh, to some of our uninitiated like me, is a capstone <laughs> like a term paper or, or what is that? It's a final class. So most of the students who take a capstone, and it's kind of become a common practice, I think, across many universities, is your second to last or your last semester in college is finishing up or capping off everything you've learned in your major and then showing it off. And for historians, as you've kind of indicated, as exciting as it is, that means a long paper most of the time. And you know, we get to do things like present our work and, you know, make posters and sort of tell and communicate the stories that that our students have been working on. But the big crux of it for us is just that final paper where they get to show off everything they've learned over the last four or five or six years. And it's it's definitely intense. Uh, I think right now my students are, at least the ones who are not openly cursing my name, are definitely <laughs> silently doing it. <laughs> no, they're gonna they're gonna love you. You should plug this broadcast when you. <laughs> I should I should tell them that they got a shout out. So you know, congrats, <laughs> yeah. history four sixty. You're making the big time. You're on the radio now. <laughs> so how long have you been at Worcester State? This is my ninth year, and it's kind of wild wow. to think that it's been that long. Yeah, we moved to Massachusetts in the summer of 2012 and, you know, lived in Worcester for a year. And now we live in a town outside of Worcester in Auburn. And uh, it's it's the longest we've lived in a state since we've gotten married in 2002. So it's kind of funny that we've been here that long. Um, it doesn't seem like it. It still feels like I'm the new kid on the block sometimes. <laughs> um, is teaching easier now with the internet and computers than it was when you first started? In some ways, yes. I mean, I think particularly as we've seen with the pandemic, I can't even imagine what we would have done had we not been able to transition to Zoom or something like that. You know, all these different programs where we can connect and kind of keep things going as much as possible. I mean, it's not the same for sure. Um, in other ways, I think it's harder though, in, in that, you know, 
we are on call a lot, students. I remember it, email was just really getting started when I was in college and it was still weird to me <laughs> to send an email to my professor. And you know, I still had in my head, there, there are very specific hours within which you email a professor, you go see them in office hours. Um, now it's the 24 seven problem, right? Where students can email you at three in the morning <laughs> or <laughs> some other time when they're working maybe, but, but it is sort of a managing time, I think is harder. It's better for communication for sure. And it's definitely better for research. I mean, being able to do homework where you don't have to be in the library at two in the morning, you could you know, sign on to a website that definitely helps, I think. So there are, there are definite pluses. There are definite minuses. Some things are harder. I think some expectations go up. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those mixed bag things, I think. Talk about um, going virtual. You had, you've had to do that, I would assume, uh, yes. since the pandemic started. Uh, are, are you still doing it? And, and I'll bet it isn't as much fun as face-to-face -face contact, even if you use Zoom. Yeah, it definitely is a different beast. I will say when the pandemic hit in spring of 2020, I was on research leave. So I was on sabbatical. I wasn't teaching. Thankfully, because everybody in my house, I at that time had a senior in high school and a fifth grader and a preschooler and a spouse who was teaching six classes. So being wow. able, yeah, being able to, to help navigate whatever this change was going to be where we didn't know from day to day, you know, was this two weeks? Was this two months? It, you know, broadened into longer. Uh, so I, I'm glad for that, that I wasn't trying to also navigate moving online at the same time. We did end up teaching mostly virtually last year. And I taught preliminarily from home over Zoom where meeting with classes, you know, all at one time, but obviously not in the same room. And the hard part is, and this is why I think it's a different type of difficult, is, you know, a lot of my students didn't have a great place to meet in class. So they would be in closets and in bathrooms and in kitchens. So their camera would be off and their microphone would be off. And we might be talking on chat, but I, for a lot of my students, I still don't know what they look like. And that's really hard for somebody like me, who's very terrible with names, but great with faces. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, it's like, I'll meet somebody in, in, the hallway at school and they'll be like, hey, Dr. B. And I'll be like, hi, you, who you are? I'm not <laughs> And I feel terrible because if I could connect a name to a face more easily, you know, then at least I could say, how are things going? You know, knowing what they had written in my class, even if I couldn't recall the name right away. Um, so that has been hard, especially for the classes where we don't meet on Zoom. So I never really make a face-to-face -face connection with them ever. They're, they're an email. Or if you know we do meet on Zoom or something or on the phone, I don't get to make that connection. And I'm somebody who really, uh, well, I call myself flaily because I do tend to kind of move from one end to the other. If I had to sit on my hands, I would never be able to talk again. I use my hands to talk and it's really hard to transition that virtually, you know, and try to get students excited. As you mentioned, right, history maybe not being your favorite subject. Imagine trying to get a bunch of students who are there because they have to be. <laughs> and don't. Yeah. Have to be. And I can't even just sort of jump around and make terrible jokes. I mean, I do still make terrible jokes, but there's not that feeling in the room. And so it is a lot harder to engage students, I think, over the internet. But I'm still grateful that we had it because I, I really wonder what disruption we would have had we not had that option. So, yeah. Now you teach German history yes. and you, and, uh, did you have to learn the German language? Yes. Or could you have done it without it? I mean, I probably could have tried to do it without it, but the hard part is, is really getting a sense of, who and what you're writing about and talking about. And that's in German most of the time. All of my documents are in German. They're not digitized. So I had to go to Germany a couple of times to do research. 
And I, I lived there. I actually, I do not fly on airplanes, which makes getting to Germany quite a to-do. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so- How did you get there? By boat? Yes. I took the Queen Mary too. <laughs> well, I bet so, that would have been an experience. Oh, definitely. It's, it's for, I, I like these new experiences and meeting new people. And there are tons of different types of people on those ships. And for me, when I did my first trip in 2010, it was point A to point B for me until I got to the waiting room to get on the ship and realized, oh no, this is vacation for people. Like they (laughs) come here, they fly to the boat, take the boat and then fly home. Like this is what people do. So while for me, it, it started out just being, you know, a way to get there and not leave the surface of the planet. It was, it, it was really interesting to kind of meet all these different people. My sister traveled with me the first time. Uh, the second time I went in 2015, my mom traveled with me. And it, it's definitely interesting to, to live in the place where you're doing research each time I went for three months, because I didn't know when I'd get to go back. So I would be there for an extended period of time, most of the time with people who did not speak German. So I was the only conduit and I read German better than I speak it. But by the time we left, I was pretty comfortable and almost weirded out by hearing English spoken around me. <laughs> Which is something it I must have been, It must have been interesting though. I, I'm curious to hear about more of your uh, experiences over there. I mean, I've been on two cruises with my wife and and I love them. I think it's great because you meet people from all over the country. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and especially for something like the Queen Mary too, which is this, this def- destination with a long history, talking about history again, um, you know, getting on a transatlantic sea liner that talks a lot about the history of Cunard and sail- saving the Titanic survivors and then telling yep. us we're going over the Titanic, which was a bit unnerving, uh, and, and talking a little bit about just why people are on the ship, um, whether it was people on their anniversary trip, people from Europe, people from Canada, people from the United States, from South Africa, from Latin America, from Eastern Europe, um, all the way to... Uh, a whole group of Amish travelers because they don't take airplanes. So they were taking the ship and, you know, sitting on the deck and reading. And it was just very interesting, the, the different people and the reasons for being there. And, and I really, really enjoyed it, although it was completely unexpected because I always envisioned that I would just find a way to knock myself out and get on an airplane. Uh, luckily, I haven't had to do that. And I have a very understanding spouse who's willing to <laughs> wrangle the children for three months while I'm away doing research. So yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. The place that I do most of my research is a town called Lübeck, which is up in the Northwest corner of Germany, not far from Denmark, very close to Hamburg. And so it's kind of an area that not a lot of researchers go to, um, or at least that not a lot of people are aware of for whatever reason, but it's kind of my, German home away from home. So whenever I go, I stay in the same apartment building and, you know, shop at the same Aldi and, and (laughs) hang out in the, in the archives and get yelled at by the reading room attendant. So it's, it's a lot of fun. It's definitely, you know, it's been six years since I've been, it'll probably be another couple before I can go again, but um, I really enjoy being there. It's just a totally different pace and you meet so many different people. Going now, did you did you learn German in Germany? No, I learned German actually in my master's program at SIU Edwardsville. And it was funny because growing up in Wisconsin, I love to call it just north of Milwaukee, little Germany. I mean, my choices for foreign language in high school were Spanish or German. And to my great grandmother's chagrin, I took Spanish and uh I remember her telling me, you know, shaking her finger and saying, you're going to regret this. And I was like, why? It's <laughs> <laughs> really important. My mom actually was a preemie ICU nurse and an emergency room nurse in Children's Hospital in Chicago for a while and said that the biggest regret she had was that she hadn't learned Spanish. And so she really pushed us to learn Spanish. And 
wouldn't you know, great grandma Sabatki was right. Uh, I needed to learn German for my career. <laughs> mm. So I learned I, it in the midst of my master's program, actually. And, and are people, obviously, they're more receptive when they find someone who can speak the native language. Yes. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, though, because the expectation, apparently I look enough like a local that people will come up and start speaking very quick German to me. And I usually am, at least at the beginning, nervous about it, especially speaking to native speakers, because I know my grammar is not the greatest. And so, you know, I'll, I'll sort of ask them, you know, long summer, bitte, and they'll stop, look at me and start speaking in perfect English. And, <laughs> and, and most of the time it's like, no, 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 please, please. I need, I need to get this back in my ear. Um, but, but uh, yeah, it's, it's really funny. Um, the expectation in my field is that if you're going to do German history, and I think this is for most for most historians of a, a region not English speaking is that you speak the language there. And many of my colleagues speak multiple languages and read multiple languages. I am unfortunately not one of those. I can I have enough Spanish to be dangerous and, <laughs> I, you know, read, read German. I would love to be able to pick up French and, and a couple others in all my spare time. But there are definitely people you, in order to get into the sources and really get a sense without the filter of a translator, you know, the goal is you read all your own stuff. So it's kind of an expectation of the field that people don't expect. Um, and it certainly surprised me, even having gravitated toward European history in college, that when I got to graduate school, the expectation was, no, you have to read the language you're researching. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense, especially if we're talking about reading, you know, in the voice of the people of the past, they didn't have translators and whoever translates, if you've ever translated a language and maybe some of your listeners will know this, it's a definite art and not a science. And I agonize over every single word that I translate in my documents because, you know, a synonym is not always a synonym. So it's figuring out what is closest to the original spirit of what people were writing. That makes things hard. <laughs> yeah. How is it, just out of curiosity, I, I'm, as I said, I'm not the greatest student in the world, but <laughs> I know that the Germans played a big part in World War II. Oh, yes. Is it, is it very emotional for some students to go through some things like that and discuss like you know, like, say, uh, the diary of Anne Frank or Adolf yeah. Hitler or Adolf Eichmann, people like that? Yeah, I would say, you know, especially as we get farther away from World War II, my, my area or era of expertise is really the 1920s through the 1960s. And so it's covering World War II and, and Nazism. Um, most of the time, if you're talking to students about Anne Frank or, or Elie Wiesel or other people who were well-known survivors who then, or unfortunately not survivors, but who left written records, you know, that is definitely something students struggle with from time to time. Um, they're familiar with it, but it's, they definitely have more of an emotional connection. When you start talking about Adolf Hitler and, and the motivations and the reasons, I think more than not, students are just confused by it and, and mm -hmm. you know, struggling to understand how somebody could have a hatred that would drive them to orchestrating, you know, the deaths of six million people. And to an extent, I think that's the whole reason why a lot of us get into the field that we do is just that nagging question we can't quite get our arms around. For me, it's, you know, my background is German, my, my ancestors are German way back, um, but my people have been here a very long time. And I just never could understand how, you know, the land of poets and thinkers, as they like to talk, you know, the land of Beethoven and Bach and Schiller and Goethe and all of these writers, like how, how does that happen in the middle of the 20th century? And so students, I think, are starting to put a distance between themselves and that because it was a long time ago, you know, the grandparents and great-grandparents that lived during that time are quickly no longer with us. And so maybe the connection they have, I've noticed, at least with more recent students, is the more emotion 
they have is with the Vietnam War and that era, because that's their grandparents now. Yeah. And yeah. and so it's which is my parents' generation, and and just sort of navigating the questions they have and and what is okay to be emotional about. And I tell them often, you know, one of the hardest chapters of my, I'm working on a book, finishing up a book. One of the hardest chapters was the war era in Lubeck and, and just this town that I've grown to love and just how horribly they betrayed their, their Jewish civilians and being upset by that. And that that's what a lot of I think historians and scholars, the people who are connected to the stories they want to tell, have a hard time figuring out how to tell the stories. And that helps then reveal when they go on into the world, the stories, their own stories that they want to tell, what is hard for them and what isn't, what is easy to tell in terms of your background, but what's a little less easy to tell and why and, and what that means about the human experience, generally speaking. Yeah, I I know what you mean as far as different eras are concerned. My dad was in World War II. Mm. And I remember when I was in high school, uh, our senior class did the play, The Diary of Anne Frank. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was very moving, but also very disturbing. And I never quite forgot it when I I saw it. Um, I remember, yeah. I remember in school, I was probably in fifth or sixth grade, and I read the story Number of the Stars by Lois Lowry, which was about uh, a girl in Denmark and her Jewish friend. And it told the story of how Denmark largely smuggled most of its Jews out of Denmark to Sweden, which is a totally true story they did. Um, And that stuck with me in just the fact that the protagonist of the story was my age at the time. And to go, oh, (laughs) okay, so this isn't just faceless people marching around in uniforms. These are like 12-year-old girls. (laughs) And, you know, some of those stories just kind of stick with you and then show back up in in new and different ways. Um, When I was in on my way back, working my way back in 2015 to get back home, uh, my mom and I actually went to Normandy to uh, Omaha Beach because my great uncle was in the second wave at D-Day, which I didn't find out until right before I went to do research the first time. He never talked about it. It was something that my grandmother kind of looked at me like, of course this happened, didn't you know? And we were like, no, because nobody talks to Uncle Orv about the war. You know, it was this thing and just sort of standing on the beach and just looking at this vast expanse of sand and You know, a lot of people may be familiar with the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers or just images and moving pictures associated with D-Day, but it was a haunting sort of experience to be standing there and then look up at the bluffs where, you know, German soldiers had been ensconced with machine guns and firing down on these people, Canadians and Australians and New Zealanders and Americans and British just coming onto the beaches into just appalling violence, you know, and it's, it's amazing the things, those experiences, that feeling that sticks with you and you can tell students about it, even if they haven't been there and they can connect to a time where they felt something similar. Um, And it often is around things like war experience or, you know, a family member they were especially close to telling a story and yeah, students sometimes try to navigate big feelings about, about history when it's supposed to be this dispassionate thing we just retell, and it never is that. And I think students enjoy learning that it isn't. Do you, do you get students? Are you an academic advisor? Yes. So oh, yes. Do, you get, do you get students that come to you during this process and say, look, I, Ms. Breesacker, I don't, I don't really know or I don't think I can handle this. You have, to, you have to talk them into it. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think one of the big things, especially as an advisor and figuring out what 
students need and want out of their education. You know, obviously as a historian, I'm always like, you'd be surprised what you'll find in history that connects to you. Even if you think you hate it, trust me, I promise. And they're like, oh, the old, you just need a good teacher. I was like, no, you just need a good topic. The topic you like, that's the thing that'll grab you. If you put me in an American history class, sorry to all my Americanist friends, it is not as interesting to me. You get me in a Europe class, I'm all over it. And I don't know why the difference, it just, it's something I can't explain. Um, so trying to find what students are interested in or what they think they're interested in, and then saying, well, you, you really find this piece interesting, but there's so much more than just talking about tanks, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> or even a, look, this topic may be, this, this one topic in this class may be hard to navigate, but, I, there's so much more than just that one topic that you can focus on. That being said, you know, we do lose students who just say, this is not my cup of tea and I, I, I need to leave for the day. And you have that. And it usually connects to something going on or it bringing some experience up that either they haven't shared or that they haven't wrestled with yet or, you know, any number of reasons. Because of the internet and email and access to different things 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Do you find that students now are smarter than they were in 2002? <laughs> um, they, yes, um, also overwhelmed more, I think. I mean, in two, so I graduated from college in 2002. And, you know, it's not that we didn't have the internet, we did, we also had, you know, digital databases, but it, it was not the just vast landscape of digital information that you have now. You know, it, being able to navigate just the sheer amount of stuff at the, their fingertips in, in their phones, right? I and mean, I didn't have a cell phone in college. And when I finally got one, the year after it was the Nokia brick that was not a smartphone. <laughs> <laughs> the, the prospect of, I, I remember I didn't have a laptop. I would go to the library and write things down longhand, come back and work on my desktop computer. And when I told students that they're like, I just do it on my phone and take a picture. And it's just such a different world. But even in that, you know, it's still figuring out how to look at a piece of information and go, okay, is, is this nonsense? Where's this coming from? Who's trying to convince me of something? What, it, what is going on? Who's the audience? Who's the author? And, and figuring out all of that. And that hasn't changed. And learning how to do that hasn't changed. But the medium that we have to go through has. All right. I was lucky enough to be a success in the field that I chose as a vocation, that of broadcasting. And mm -hmm. luckily I was elected to the Mass Broadcasters Hall of Fame in 2011 and I've had thrills in my life that I'll never forget. Right. What about you as far as success stories with students? I know one is my <laughs> stepson, David right. Novak. Yeah. Uh, loves history and is working at Sturbridge Village. Mm -hmm. Do you have other success stories like that with some of your students? Absolutely. And it's interesting that they kind of, they, they go off and do all different things. Some of them are history oriented like David or another student of mine who ended up working at the Dr. Seuss Museum in Springfield. Others are in academia are in graduate programs and are working their way through that. Some are not even in the field at all. Um, I have one student and actually it's probably pretty bad that I don't know where he's at right now. He had started getting a job with the Philadelphia 76ers in the front office. And so he was a communications major as well. I kept trying to get him as a history minor. And he kept <laughs> taking my classes, but resisted, resisted going all the way. So Ryan Capistran, I, I should have gotten him at some point, but you know, it's, it's always great to see students who find their niche wherever it is, especially when it's a surprise. And, and then they come back and they go, hey, <laughs> that thing you said, you weren't totally wrong about. And that's usually the highest praise of you're not totally wrong. <laughs> 
So how long is your day? What, when does your day start? How many classes do you have? Do you have just one class all day long and, and reserve other hours for meetings with students? Um, tell it, me about stuff like that. Yeah, it really varies. And, and so one good thing is my, my year is never the same, you know, from, from semester to semester, I live in 15 week chunks, which is both a blessing and a curse. Uh, but my days really change. I typically teach four to five classes a semester. And because I am who I am, I cannot and I don't do well teaching two sections of the same course. So I'm currently teaching uh, World History 2, 1500 to the present. I'm teaching a course on, oh no, now I can't remember what I'm teaching. Uh, <laughs> nationalism, sorry. <laughs> a class on nationalism. That's a political science and history class. I'm teaching the capstone course on the end of the Cold War. And I am teaching a class on European intellectual history. So like philosophy and the history of thought and how that has changed over time. Um, it, it's always fun. My day can vary. Some days start really early. Tomorrow's my early day. I'll be on campus by about eight. Um, we do uh, go back and forth because we do have two kids. One's in college, so he's no longer our problem. He is Salem State's problem to figure <laughs> out when he has to be in class. Uh, but my other two, one's in first grade and one's in seventh grade, it's balancing dropping the kids off and then going and taking care of classes and then office hours and meeting with students and always committee meetings, as I'm sure you are have had as well, meetings upon meetings upon meetings. Phil's the yep. time. Yep. Oh, yeah. So, Go ahead. So, well, so some of them, I mean, there have been semesters and next semester will be one where I, I one day a week tend to have a 12 hour day, but other days, you know, I'm, you know, on campus five or six hours that doesn't count the grading time, but, you know, it really does vary just what's going on. And, and that variety is really nice because I, day to day, I need something to change or I don't know what day it is. <laughs> do, do, do you, do you, do does your family, do your kids ever come to you with and want to take advantage of the fact that you're a teacher and know something about such and such a problem and need help in it? They come to my husband for that. Uh, he is a statistician and a sociologist, and so he does the math things. They tend to make a wide circle around me because if they ask me a question about grammar, I'm going to make them fix it. And they really don't want mom's lectures. Apparently, I, I tell stories about history that they are really not interested in <laughs> but you know it's they they will I mean it's just sort of part of their lives and always has been uh, as my oldest one has gotten older he'll periodically just say what do you think about this am I on the right track here um, he really like I said does not love the grammar corrections which is why he doesn't really text me anymore because I correct his grammar and texts <laughs> <laughs> can't help myself um but but yeah i mean they they ask but most of the time they're trying to figure out what their own thing is and and hopefully they don't feel pressure to do you know something like me and their dad um our oldest is a double major in political science and sociology so that one didn't fall too far from the tree but who knows what the other two will do and, and where they'll end up going even the older one you know figuring out what what exactly is the thing that will drive him? And so we're really cognizant and careful to try to not go, you know, I know something about this. Maybe you should ask me because that's the <laughs> way to make them run the other direction. <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the things I enjoy about a profession like yours and a profession like mine in broadcasting, mm -hmm. unlike a ball player who has to, retire at a certain age because he just doesn't have it anymore. Mm. These are professions you never grow old in. Absolutely. I agree. It's, it's interesting too. I, I joke. I mean, I started at Worcester state when I was 32 and I was one of the younger ones on campus and now I'm not, I'm in the middle, but uh, I'm starting to get gray hair. And in my profession, I joke that brings me street cred. Uh, especially for a historian, the more wrinkles and gray hair you have, the more you've seen and the more people believe you. Um, but at the same time, it's, you know, things change a lot and being around different people, you know, around my colleagues who all have different specialties and, 
different majors and I always get an opportunity to learn something different. It's like tons and tons of things for me to, to, to just sit back and listen to. And students I find too bring in things I could never anticipate, which on one hand is a little unnerving. Sometimes you never know what that one question will be that'll just throw you off your game. But on the other hand, when they do that, it's always good to kind of sit back and go, okay, all right, so I will get back to you on that. It's something new. And that is the nice thing. It's, there's never, you can never know everything. So it's always nice to try. <laughs> You're just out of curiosity. Does your family get the benefit of German cooking? They, they would if they'd eat it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to, I've made spätzle and, and, you know, all the verse that you can, but they, it usually just leads to terrible puns and jokes. I keep trying to get them to try new things, you know, uh, Jaeger, Jaeger verse and Jaeger schnitzel with egg on it. And they kind of stare me, stare at me and say, no, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, it's when I'm back home or, you know, they they, they definitely know a good brat when they see one and uh-huh. I, convince them that sauerkraut's delicious but that just means there's more for me well i i have thoroughly enjoyed this i like i said i've never interviewed a college professor be, before until now yeah and this I, is I, great. I i can't think of a better place to start um if there's anything you want to add that i have not asked you please take a minute or so and feel free to do so um, now I think we covered a lot. I mean, it's been kind of nice to just sit back and go, how did I end up here? Sometimes it's <laughs> almost like I've been in it forever, but not. And, you know, just like every other profession, it's always fun to find out how, how did you find that thing? And for me, you know, I, I tended to lurch from one happy accident to the next, but, but that's, that's always, I think the story in some way you found the thing, you found the thing and that's what we want. Well, listen, I, I, I thank you for taking an hour or so out of your time and your busy schedule. And uh, I've enjoyed this. I'm sure our audience has. And uh, maybe we'll have you back sometime. That would be great. And, and thank you. And good night, everybody. That will do it for this edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.